Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. This week, we're bringing you part one of a three-part sermon series that was preached a few years ago called Influenced by the Cross. The first sermon in this series covers the way that understanding the cross changes the words we use and the way we use them. We're rerunning this series by request. If there's an older sermon or sermon series or lecture or other recording from Grace Downtown's history that you'd like to hear again, drop me an email at rick at gracedc.net. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this week's material from the Grace Downtown archives. The second reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and it's on page 4 of your bulletin. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. God, that's our very prayer. That our faith, that our belief, and all of us have faith here, faith in something, that it would not rest on the wisdom of men and it would not rest on the so-called power of men. But we would find you today. And we know we are set up for that because you have called this meeting. And we expect you to do what you do. In Christ's name, amen. If there is a symbol of the Christian faith, it's the cross. And when you look at it, well, it's not much to look at. Pretty plain, pretty simple. Tree going this way, one going that way. But the longer you study it, you find the design is more intricate than maybe you thought. The first thing that might hit you is it's a shocking symbol. I mean, after all, it's a death sentence. You know, we might as well just wear uh, lethal injection needles around. That would be closer to the original meeting. It's a personal symbol because a person died on it in 33 A.D., Jesus Christ. It's a just or legal symbol because it's a symbol that reminds us of the demand that's owed to the law, the debt that's owed to the law, and the payment given to the law. It's a timeless symbol. It affects the past, the present, and the future. And it's a valiant symbol. Because it's a picture of heroic, voluntary self-sacrifice. 
So as we look at this thing, it's got more to it than meets the eye. And then when you begin to move a little bit, get around it, get different perspective on it, you see even more. You see that before the cross is the display of God's passionate love that he would stop at nothing to have you. By it, you come to see that you are fully forgiven and fully accepted and fully loved for the first time. Through it, you come to see that you have been reconciled to God, but not only God, you have been reconciled to the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And under it, under it, you come to see that God means to influence every aspect of your life. Now, influence can be defined as the ability to affect change, the ability to affect character or development. You know, sometimes you're listening to music and you hear influence, right? You can say, you know, I, I hear a bit of Etta James and Adele. Or I hit a little, hear a little bit of Duke Ellington and Wynton Marcellus. Or something that you see. I see some neoclassical influence in the architecture of Union Station. Or I see French Second Empire in the Eisenhower Building. Now, you know I looked both of those up. <laughs> those of you that are long enough going, there's no way he knew that. Those of you that were here just even for 20 minutes of the service said, there's no way he knew that. If you just walked in, maybe you thought I knew that. Or it's the influence in ourselves. You know, I see a bit of your mother in you. I see a bit of your uncle in you. A Christian is someone of whom it said, I see a bit of the cross in you. I see the cross in you. And so for these next weeks leading up to Easter 4, I want us to think about the influence of the cross upon us. Starting tonight with words. Influence upon our words. And we'll look at three things, because that seems to be what Presbyterians do every week. They look at three things. Sometimes we shock you when we look at two or four, but we're looking at three. That is the trust of our words, the transformation of our words, and the telos of our words. The trust, the transformation, and the telos. And by trust of our words, what I mean is what our words reveal about what we trust. Now, aside from breathing, there's not anything that more naturally flows from us than our words. The best stats I could see is we say about 16,000 of them a day. Now, they used to say that women had more and men had less, but the, the latest research is that they speak about the same. And I know that's probably a shock to some of you women uh, that have maybe encountered more than one or two nonverbal men. But the truth is this. Though we may be aware of what we say, we're not aware often of why we say it. That's what a good counselor can do, right? They can hear what you say or what you don't say, and they can get your heart in it. You, go, you know, I noticed that uh, when we come to things that are sort of tense, you just go, ah, it doesn't really matter. Or I notice you use the word always and never a lot. They can get at our heart. And when they do that, they're modeling the Bible. Because it's the Bible all along, whether it be the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs, the wisdom literature of the New Testament, James, where Jesus is teaching, the Bible has said all along that words are the billboard of your heart. 
Words are the megaphone of your heart. Nothing will reveal your heart more than your words. But the insight of this passage takes us even further than that. Because what we find in it is that words not only reveal what we feel, they reveal what we trust in. You'll see that words reveal not only your heart condition, but your hope for salvation. That's the connection Paul is making here. Paul reminds the Corinthians of how he spoke when he was in their presence. Now, Corinth, like Washington, was a town of words. Many speeches, many words, rhetoric it was called. A big industry was public relations, where they would have hired public speakers who would then try to persuade public opinion. And the people in Corinth and the church were used to that sort of style of speaking and that level of speaking, but Paul came and spoke in a way that didn't please them because he came with unimpressive words. He didn't come with lofty speech. He didn't use the lingo that they would use. But I'm interested in why he didn't. And I want you to notice something. Look at the reason he gives us. That he did not come with lofty speech. Why? Because he decided to know nothing among them except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why. Now, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that Paul just literally, the only thing he ever taught were the historical details and events of Jesus Christ's crucifixion? That when someone came up to him with a marriage question, he just said, Christ and him crucified? When someone said, hey, can you give me directions to the Colosseum? He just said, Christ and him crucified? Of course not. If you look at this letter, Paul talks about lots of things. He talks about marriage. He talks about lawsuits. He talks about snobbery. What is he saying? Paul is saying priority. Paul is saying that who Jesus is and what he has done has become so precious to me and so important to me and so influential on me, it has affected even the very words that I speak. That's what he's telling us. Now, influence is always seen in words, right? Through your words, I can tell out who you're hanging out with, the shows that you're watching, the philosophies that you bought into, right? We start to hang out with different people. We take on their, you know, what they say and their inside jokes. Someone watches one episode of a Seinfeld show and the whole nation is saying yada, yada, yada. We can watch, you know, one YouTube video on the plight of the invisible children and it becomes a topic of conversation. Influence is heard in our words. But again, this passage is telling us something more than that. It's saying that your words will not only reveal the influences upon you, it will reveal what you're hoping in to be saved. That if you listen closely, your words are telling you what you're hoping in to be saved. That is, all our words are tied to some salvation message. That's what Paul is saying when he said, I decided to know Christ and him crucified. That's shorthand for saying, I believe and I trust that Jesus Christ has saved me. He says, that is why I speak differently. The two are connected hand in hand. And we know this. All our words are preaching some salvation message. Impressive words, I'm saved by being smart. Boastful words, I'm saved by being great. Critical words, I'm saved by being better than you. Defensive words, I'm saved by being right. Seductive words, I'm saved by getting what I want. Surface words, I'm saved by hiding. 
abusive words. I'm saved by intimidating. We're speaking 16,000 words a day. How are you trying to be saved? What are those words telling you? And it may be that you are someone who professes with your mouth that Jesus Christ has saved you and he is your Lord and Savior. But your words will really tell the story. The kind of words you're using will really show what you're trusting in. You know, we are able to catch the drift of words and the tone of words. I'm asking you, can you catch the gospel in your words? Can you catch the message that you were really turning to in your words. This is what Paul is telling us. And when we begin to understand that our words reveal what we trust in ultimately, we then can move to our words transforming us or being transformed so that our words are. Which gets us to the second point, the transformation of words. Another thing that Paul says to us, that the, the way that his words change weren't uh, the result of a vocabulary change. It was character change. That's why his words changed. Words are more than words. Now, we had another example of that this week, right? When a talk radio host, Rush Limbaugh, referred to a Georgetown student as a prostitute and a slut. And while people were offended by what he said, they were more offended by his apology, right? Because his response was, well, I didn't use the best word choice. Now, by the way, he's not the first one to use that response when he's been nailed for something like that. But, you know, why did people get so mad? Because the issue wasn't that, just word choice. If so, they would have bought him a thesaurus. But instead, they wanted him to say he was sorry, right? Because they knew it was a deeper issue. It wasn't an issue of vocabulary. It was an issue of being unkind, You had to go deeper and look into the heart, into the character. And it's only when you and I begin to do that that we will become transformed in our words if we look at that level. Now, as I mentioned to you, Corinth was a town of words, a town of rhetoric. And in that town, there were two schools of rhetoric. There was the old school and the new school. And the old school, which was made up of guys like Cicero or Seneca, maybe you've heard of those names before, They were troubled by the folks in the new school because they felt like the ones in the new school were basically just after applause and trying to dazzle people with their words. This is how one in the old school described them. They loved to be greeted with a storm of ready-made applause, shouts of unseemly enthusiasm, behaving like star athletes and musicians. The result is vanity and self-sufficiency. intoxicated by the wild enthusiasm of their fellow pupils. Their goal was to win approval, and their creed was to win at all costs. And the folks in the old school instead believed that words were supposed to serve and educate society. Now, that's not a bad word for us that use words, right? Those of us that are in the business of words... Hopefully, we would fall on the ladder. It's a challenge. It's a temptation, isn't it? But it's into this scene that Paul enters and plants a church in Corinth, and it's up against this he begins to rub with the people in the church because they want him to come like the speakers of Corinth. They want to hear the lofty words, the impressive words. Now, now let me say something. Let me qualify this. You know, having a good vocabulary is not a sin. Having a good word bank is not a sin. Diversity in language and depth of language can be a beautiful thing. 
It's not the size of your vocab. It's the spirit behind your words. That's what Paul is talking about here. And you notice how Paul says he spoke is related to who he was with them. He goes, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I didn't come with lofty speech or impressive words. Why? Because I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. This is who I was before you. Now, don't mistake that for insecurity or people-pleasing. You only have to read a little bit of Paul. He he would be the first to say, you know, I, I don't care if you judge me or anybody else judges me. And don't take it as incompetence. He wasn't saying, you know, a really effective gospel presentation is when you're trembling so much you can't even speak. That's not what he's saying either. He's talking about the effect of the cross upon his character, which was this. Paul had learned the grace of God in a way that had freed him where he no longer had to hide behind his words. He no longer had to hide behind his words. And you know, and I know what that's like. We're masters of disguise. And there are words that we wear. You know, for example, I'm not mad. I'm just frustrated. I'm not irritated. I just wanted you to be aware of what you were doing in case you hadn't noticed. You know, our lives, if we look at that, are really one big hide-and-seek game all day long, trying to hide behind our words and trying to find out what other people mean by their words. Hiding behind our words, pretending from our words, and Paul is saying that God's grace had given him to a place where he no longer was doing that anymore. He wasn't shielding himself with his words. He wasn't covering himself with his words. They wanted to do that. That's what they wore in Corinth. That was the style of the day. And Paul came in, and man, he just looked ugly. He looked like a bumbling idiot. He looked foolish because he wouldn't play that game. Something had changed Paul, even in that high-pressure environment, to look smart and speak well. Something had changed him. And it wasn't like he didn't have the goods. I mean, I've, I've mentioned before, Paul had the equivalent of a couple PhDs. He was bright. He was brilliant. I mean, he brought the Gentile world into the Christian faith, and on top of that, he could do some miracles. I mean, this was a guy that was an impressive person. It wasn't like he didn't have the goods. But the cross made him live differently. He lived before the Corinthians where he did not have a small need for God's grace. He was not one that portrayed himself as having little sins. He didn't have a small need for prayer. He had a big need for prayer. And even the memories of his having been beaten in every town, even they came up, and at night they would get him. In fact, we're told in the book of Acts that one night that Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision. And he said, Paul, do not be afraid. And this was in Corinth. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Sometimes even the great apostle got afraid. But what was it that changed a man whose words once were so arrogant 
and so harsh and breathed out murderous threats. What was it that changed a man? How could that sort of change deep down happen? And he tells us what it was. He saw Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what it was. He saw the strong one become weak for him, even to the point of death. He saw the one that had all the gifts and all the talents and all the honor lay down that to take on Paul's shame. He saw the one that was so eloquent that the whole world should listen to, that the entire cosmos should listen to. He saw that one fall silent before his accusers. And it changed the way that Paul would speak. And more so, he saw that one make him his boast. That Jesus Christ would make Paul his boast. He wasn't ashamed to call him brother. He saw the God of the universe who could just from an hour's worth of his words nail him and damn him to eternity speak a word of grace to him. Speak a word of kindness to him so that he would be blameless and holy in the sight of all men. My friends, when you see that, you don't talk the same. You're changed. I mean, when you see the grace of God that way, and when you see Christ in him crucified, and when you connect with what's going on there, that the Son of God is taking your junk, that the Son of God is pouring his life for you, when you and I begin to see that, I mean, we get a brand new dictionary. We start speaking a brand new language. You and I don't need a new vocabulary. We need a new gospel. That's what we need. <laughs> you, know, you, you and I don't need help being you know, better speakers and more culturally savvy. We need a new gospel. I need a new gospel because I get to speak all the time in this town. And I quake and I tremble. I want to be smart. I want to be savvy. But I got the gospel. And I'm so glad because, man, if you think I'm near unbearable up here, without the gospel, I would be really unbearable up here. <laughs> I needed that amen from the amen corner. Are you out there today? It's quiet today. Let me just tell you. There we go. It doesn't have to be after every point, but, you know, just... It is kind of funny, you know, I mean... It is kind of funny um, how, you know, if we were in any other social setting and there was absolutely no noise, it would, well, I know we're talking and you're listening, but you know what I mean. It's a good thing. I'm glad to know you're there. And Russ would know well with the other pastors and staff how unbearable that would be. So, but let's move to the telos of the word, which means purpose or end. Fancy word to say purpose or end. Now, the Corinthians wanted Paul to play the game. They wanted him to give what they wanted. They wanted to say, Paul, save us like the Corinthians do. Save us that way. Save us like the world does. Save us by saying, I'm saved by, I'm better. I'm smarter than you. I'm more moral. He wouldn't give it to them. He couldn't give it to them because he loved them. He loved them too much to do that. I mean... To give them that would be to give them an insincere salvation and an ineffective salvation. When you and I play the Corinthian word game, we're not loving people. Because what we want them to do is rest their faith and hope on us. 
And Paul didn't want to do that. Because he knew what it was to be free where God rested, came and rescued him so he could rest his hope on something better. And to hide behind our weakness and yet to speak the message of this gospel, well, it's a mixed message. You know what it's like to get a mixed message, right? I mean, well, that, that's a nice dress. You know, mixed message. Or, I'm not angry! Mixed message. Same is true as the gospel, right? When we're saying, come to God as you are, but never let down our guard, mixed message. We say that the gospel of grace will free you, but day by day, just driven by our idols and our idols, mixed message. And so for Paul to speak that way would have been totally confusing to these people. It would be ineffective, too, because there isn't lasting power in it. You know, Jesus, well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that in a second. I better, right? I better get to Jesus. In my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul instead says, instead of insincere salvation, I want to give you sincere hope. Instead of ineffective power, I want to give you effective power. How does he do it? Well, first of all, he doesn't allow people's God-sized hope to rest on him. Now, let me tell you, if anybody had a a chance to say, rest on me, it was the apostles. You know, that had actually happened to Paul in Barnabas, I believe it was, on another island where they did a healing and all these people started saying, you're Zeus and Hermes. They actually said the words to him, the gods have come to us in human form. How would you respond? I'll get back to you on that one, right? It's just sort of like, hmm, that feels pretty good. The gods have come to us in human form. I dream about that all day long. That people will say to me in Washington, you must be a god that has come in human form to me. (laughs) We love that. He wouldn't allow that. He wanted them to rest their hope on a real god. Christ, the rock. They have a god-sized need. He wants them to put it on a god-sized savior, Jesus. He's saying, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to build your life on false words. The wisdom of men, the power of men. I don't want you to do it because I love you. And a sign that you and I understand this cross is we'll start doing that with other people. We stop using our words on people. We start using our words for people. We no longer look to try to draw people's trust on us primarily. Their hope on us. But the second thing was effective power. You know, that word power that he uses here means effectiveness. That's what it means in this context. Now, I want you to think a second about the most impactful words that have been spoken to you in your life. Words that have really stuck with you. And let me ask you, was it because they were given by someone who was highly educated? Or they were given in a dazzling, charming way? I know the answer to that. They had power. They had power of truth. They had power of love in them. The Spirit of God had gotten into those words somehow, and he had made them powerful and effective. If they're true words, that's why they've stayed with you. And that's where Jesus is so amazing. You know, Jesus in his ministry, 
came across the religious leaders of his day were the scribes and Pharisees. They were the learned men, the learned men. Now, there's something interesting. Jesus just comes up through the synagogue. He was trained. He, he was faithful. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus, if you read his teaching, speaks in very common language. He's using just normal illustrations, not a whole lot of big words there. But the response from the people was, what is this amazing authority and power? Where the teaching of the religious leaders was like nothing. Why? It's because they were soaked in the Spirit of God. What I'm saying is, you know, you may feel, you know, I don't think my words have much power on people. I, you know, I, I wasn't educated the way I wanted to be educated. I don't have the verbal gifts that I wish I could have had. I'm shy. You may feel like I don't have a voice in this society. I don't have a voice in this city. I don't have a voice in this culture. And I want to say to you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because if the cross of Jesus gets on your words, they will be powerful. Powerful words. Words that transform lives. Words that transform cities. Words that transform nations. They transform globes. And I only need to point to the history of Christianity to tell you that's true. Because the words were like fire and they spread. It doesn't matter, my friends. If you want powerful and effective words, the way that you will get them is when your words are soaked in the wisdom of the gospel. Because that is what people are ultimately hungry for. That is where they're weak and that's what they need. Just the clear speaking of what it means to think wise about the gospel. A wisdom of God that it's just, it just works. What's the definition of effective? It just works. It works to bring you new life. It works to change your direction. It works to make you think about grace instead of the same old way that you would work. It works in breaking down walls. It works in just giving you guidance and making decisions and choices. It just works. The words of God. I testify to that. The first part of my life was, was, was lived according to Glenn's book of wisdom. And I'll save you the illustrations and footnotes from that book. I don't even know I can, I can rate it in this book, in this room. And then God brought me a different word. And I know some of you are, you know, you're checking this word out. I'm glad you're here. This is not the wisdom of men we're talking about. And it gives me hope for our city in particular because, you know, Washington is a city that's divided by words, isn't it? Political words. Racial words, class words. This is a city that is broken by words. And then I begin to think about, what if just everybody in this room began to recognize and have their words soaked in the gospel? That's like a powder keg, in a good way. People that can go out and speak words in a city that is divided. And so that we find that God does something that's beyond any of our imaginations. So, my friends, the influence of the cross upon our words is the way forward. I pray that, um, well, I'll just do that. I'll pray now. God, 
I ask that you would soak our words in the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would hear your word first. I pray, O oh God, that you would change the way we think about the power of our speech. I pray that you would remove the clutter of our minds, that we, we would hear your voice clearly. And we pray, O oh God, that you would use our words to a holy end. In Christ's name, amen.